Hey, thanks for joining me and Rick Hookstep as we talk big tech, small tech, and everything in between every two weeks and no flipping adverts. I'm stationed in my usual comfortable spot in a slightly echoey room in England, while Rick is in Spain, which is always echoey because they don't have carpets. <laughs> have you seen a carpet showroom since you moved there, Rick? Uh, no, only, um, only like magic carpets, you know, flying <laughs> carpets. That's the only sort of carpets we get. We've, because we're right on the um, south coast, we're very close to North Africa. So there's a, in Andalusia, there's a strong kind of Moroccan influence. So, but that's the nearest thing. But, you know, you don't get uh, fitted carpets here in Spain. So, Rick, what tech has interested you this week? Well, I suppose the big, the, the most overarching kind of story that's, uh, that interests me is, is how the market is absolutely murdering the tech stocks. If you take, um, you know, just take the big five, if you look at, uh, you know, Alphabet are down 19%, Amazon are down 30%, Apple are down, Meta are down 38%, Microsoft are down, you know, the big five. And we've had this kind of two-year boom in tech stocks. And now all of a sudden, all of the big ones are underperforming the S&P 500. Um, and actually, the big five are probably the better performing underperformers, if that's not too much of an oxymoron. <laughs> um, and, you know, Netflix are down. You just see what uh, Netflix did, 65% or so just this year. Shopify is down. Lyft lost like a third of its value last week. Is it post-pandemic uh, disruption? Well, I think it's a number of things, Sean. You've got rising interest rates and you've got that combined with rising inflation and just the cost of living uh, across the board. The war in Ukraine has definitely created enormous economic uncertainty. And then you've got things like this COVID lockdown situation in China, which is sort of bizarre two years after we had the start of our lockdowns, that now China is in this complete lockdown. But the effect there is huge because it's really impacting supply chains, um, which were in recovery anyway from the pandemic. And then you've got some sort of self-inflicted plane. You know, I mean, just Apple's anti-tracking changes in iOS have had a huge effect on a large number of the tech economy that is based on an advertising revenue business model. So yeah, but you see, I like that. I like that they've disrupted things with the privacy side of things because I'm not a big fan of the ad model. Uh, well, that's a, that's a topic for a, a long conversation. Um, I mean, That's another episode, is yeah, it? Yeah, it's another episode. Well, in fact, we've got somebody lined up uh, uh, that we can talk about next week who's going to talk to us all about how they're going to come up with a completely new model for the, uh, the ad business model. But, you know, when you think about... Um, when you think about the impact of the advertising business model, and on the one hand, you've got the concerns around privacy and tracking and all the manipulation that comes with it. But on the other, other hand, you've got all of these services that we take for free. Google Maps, we take for free. You know, there's 3 billion people using Facebook. Whatever you think of Facebook, it's a free service. I've used LinkedIn since about 2009. I have over 100,000 followers. I've never paid LinkedIn a penny. No, of course, but, but it, free as in money, but not free as in data, not free as in our personal data. So I guess it's the perception of what we mean by free and how much we give away. Well, it's the old cliche, isn't there? If, you know, if the, if the product's for, it doesn't cost you anything, you're the product kind of thing. So. Yes. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. so, so look, I, I think, Sean, you know, to me, the, uh, particularly because I'm an active investor, you know, it's, it's, it's top of my mind. But I got something else for you that I was sort of interested in, and I saw this and I did think of you because I may have got this wrong, Sean, but you look to me like you wear Gucci. <laughs> Gucci. I'm, a bit, I'm pulling your leg. But I don't know if you saw, but, but Gucci are now going big time into crypto and um, you, they're going to start accepting about a dozen or so different cryptocurrencies as part of their whole kind of push into the crypto scene. I mean, what do you think? Are they of, making their own or are they just accepting? No, they're just accepting. Are they making their own? They're just accepting. I mean, and this is not just Bitcoin. This is, um, you know, Shibu and, and you know, all, well, probably the, the top 10 
um, or 12 of the currencies, Dogecoin and the likes. I have to say, I, I'm highly skeptical of this of this kind of uh, shift towards using cryptocurrencies to actually buy stuff. I think the uh, that most of these currencies are worthless tokens, and this notion that you could actually trade in them, whilst it's a good experiment, I think is no more than than just early stage experimentation. Well, you see, I can't. I'm not going to pretend that I understand the the whole the, this side of things. But is it a little bit like you wouldn't go to a news agent and pay for your newspaper with gold? Um, well. Well, yes, but the interesting thing with gold, of course, which is <clears throat> really what is the main kind of comparator with, say, Bitcoin, is that it's very difficult to transfer, to transport $10,000 of, of gold. You know, it's, it's, right. a, it's a heavy yeah. bag, whereas you could have it on your on your smartphone and nobody would even know it's there. Um, no, it's more that you probably wouldn't, um, yeah, I guess it's a good analogy. You, you just wouldn't use, I don't know, what, I don't know, I don't know what a good I'd analogy I use my, my Gucci pouch full of gold. Uh, medallions <laughs> get, get the latest uh, get the observer i can see you on your magic carpet from morocco <laughs> going down to the high street with your gucci with your gucci man bag full of gold bars well new you know what new tech in our life this week though is we got our first electric car so we got we got the ionic 5 have you heard of that one i have excellent yeah. what do you think nice car it's a great car yeah it's got a few teething problems so the alarm keeps going off right at four o'clock in the morning so we've no idea where that so it's going back in tomorrow to see what we can do there but wow it's just amazing it's just lovely to have an electric car we didn't go down the tesla route mm. um and and one of the reasons is uh, uh it's more luxurious inside the ionic and uh, you know for for the vacuous uh, among us who like the look of certain cars <laughs> i've always thought the tesla looked like a ford mondeo so it's never really appealed to me Whereas the Ionic 5 looks like Marty McFly's, you know, Back to the Future. It's the DeLorean. Yeah. Uh, come back around 20, 21st century DeLorean. It's great. Love it. Are you there yet? No, I have a hybrid. I have a um, part combustion engine, part electric car. So it's it's kind of the step towards a full electric. Which one have you got? I have uh, the Kia Nero. Yeah. And, and are there many charging points in Spain? They, they are. In fact, I saw a UK registered Tesla Model 3 driving through my town and bear in mind i'm in the far southwest corner of spain so it's about a 1500 mile drive back to the uk um i assume that they've driven down and they've, they've managed okay you see them more and more frequently in the supermarkets uh mainly in petrol stations there are charging points uh, yeah we're getting there aren't we Here's the news. So some Apple employees are miffed because they will only get two days a week to work remotely. On the other hand, Airbnb is going all in on remote working. More on that later in the show. Amazon is fighting back against fake reviewers, saying it will take legal action against four companies accused of flooding the site with fake reviews. More than £25 million was stolen from the Great British public over the last 15 months thanks to screen-sharing scams. The FCA, otherwise known as the Financial Conduct Authority, is warning us to be on the lookout for fraudsters, especially as we're all working from home and sharing our screens these days. Huge role-playing game EVE Online is taking technology to the next level by integrating with the most advanced software technology known to man, Microsoft Excel. Yep, you heard that right. WhatsApp says it will increase the 100 megabyte file size limit to a whopping two gigabytes. Now what that means or why it's doing it, only time will tell. 
We want to talk about our big topic this week. Go for it, Rick. Well, I think we have to start with Elon Musk and the Twitter soap opera. And it is. It's a saga, isn't it? Well, look, I, Sean, to me, it's, it's, like, it's like Elon Musk is J.R. Ewing and he's in his <laughs> Texan ranch overlooking his, you know, his huge empire and he's the master of all he surveys. He's even worn the hat. He's even worn the hat, I know. I saw a tweet the other day. They said uh, it was one of these like little tweet conversations. Is are you? What are you going to name your child? Are we going to name it after our Lord and Master? And the response was, "What you mean, Jesus or Jesus?" And they said, "No, Elon." And I think that's <laughs> the kind of where we're at. But to me, I think there's a couple of things really coming around the whole Twitter saga. And this is and there's a lot of questions to ask. I mean, first is can he turn Twitter into a good business? He's come out this week. It's been reported in the New York Times that he is saying he's going to. Int- increase Twitter's revenue to $26 billion by 2028. And when you think it's it's a $5 billion a year business now, so that's a significant growth. Um, and that's going to be half from advertising revenues and half from subscriptions, mm. which is just incredible numbers when you think that they don't have any subscription revenues at the moment. What do you think about that, by the way? Do you, do you think uh, having a subscription service in Twitter is a good idea? What would you do? Yeah, I do. I, I'm, I actually kind of subscribe to the Scott Galloway model or suggestion for sub- Twitter subscriptions. And what, what he says is, like, if you're a brand or if you're, or if you're Elon Musk, who's got 91 million followers and you pay nothing to Twitter, why should Twitter not get some, some share of the value that they get? So if you went to Elon Musk and says you've got 91 million t- followers or you go to Nike that might have 30 million followers and say, we're going to charge you a fee. They would pay a sum of money, however that's calculated. But you and I, that might have a few hundred or a few thousand followers, well, they'd continue to be free. But if you're a brand and you're using Twitter to promote your brand in a way that Donald Trump did, then why should Twitter not say to them, we're going to extract some extract some value that back by charging mm. you a subscription? To me, that kind of makes sense. The advertising revenues, I'm, I'm not so sure on. I I think, um, as we've said before, you know, that kind of advertising revenue business model gets you into a murky area because you then have this motivation to push certain content in certain ways to drive certain advertising revenues. And we've seen that that's been horribly manipulated and exploited on Facebook. Twitter adverts are pretty insignificant at the moment. You don't really notice them in the same way as they come up on Facebook. Do you think it's a case of perhaps introducing a sub? Because I had a, I had to think about this when you told me this was going to be the topic. I had a thought about how might I introduce a subscription fee and how might I work that. And and the the simple thought I had was introducing a subscription fee for tweeting while viewing is entirely free. So the experience of Twitter as a place you go to to find news, you know, all those benefits Mm. that people say, you know, when we're all talking about how Twitter is evil Mm. and then you see the list of all the pros Mm. suddenly. And one of them is, well, you know, you find out the news quicker than a newspaper. So you can still view those things. And you can you can interact if you want to, but you have to pay to be a writer. Now, for me, that cuts out a lot of the, those uh, lazy trolls who don't want to pay for something. It won't cut out the trolls with money, of mm. course, but it'll cut out the, the lazy ones who know they can go and disrupt someone's life for nothing. Um, and on the other hand, if you want to be, if you want to push your brand, say you were Nike, you pay for the facility to do that. You don't necessarily even have to pay for advertising. You just pay to be able to tweet your product. What do you think? 
Um, it's flawed, isn't it? It's well, it's, it's flawed. <laughs> Tell me how flawed it is. No, no, Sh- Sean. Look, I, I think it's just a. I think it's a good idea, uh, but it's a different one to this kind of subscriptions. But it's along the same line. The downside. My first thought of the downside is that it would it would stop people who were low volume casual tweeters from ever tweeting anything and one of the great things about twitter if they ever got this right is that it's this kind of people's newspaper so this idea that you've got a war in ukraine and someone could take footage of something happening real time and tweet it as an ordinary person in the street if you have to pay for that then you put a barrier to them sharing real news from the real front line now of course it also would make people's think twice if they were posting videos from 10 years ago and claiming it was some atrocity happening now, which which you've had in Ukraine. And it Mm. might be that the people that have an agenda that are funded to promote um, misinformation are the ones that you end up uh, having. So, you know, on, on Twitter and genuine users are not tweeting so there's a downside there's definitely a downside to introducing paying for sure. But I think that in, in some way they're going to have some sort of pay to tweet. I think the subscription model works because you can do two things. Uh, if you remember, Twitter have already started a subscription already. They have this blue yeah. service, which was pretty awful. Mm. Um, and it was like $3, and it was to give you some premium access to content. Elon Musk talked about reducing the fee and making it like a, a pound or a dollar, and everybody gets it. I, do, I, don't, I don't think that adds any great value to the to the to the consumer or the user. But right now, anyone can uh, post, you know, cutting edge news from Ukraine, but also a lot of bullshit from 10 years ago for free. So anyone can do it now. And I guess this is, this comes down to a, a side element of this discussion about Elon Musk is what is free speech? What is he doing? What does he think he's going to fix? Uh, what doesn't he get right now from the, what, what does he think Twitter doesn't give people right now? Well, that's a great question, because let's face it, you and I could go onto Twitter right now and we could tweet and we could say the most awful and harmful things. We could say, you know, women are second class and like getting beaten and trans people are not proper people. And I, mean, I don't believe in any of these things, but you can say those things today. So I don't know kind of what is driving Elon Musk with his views of what he wants to open up i i actually my personal opinion is it's more of a uh, of a of a kind of a right-wing conspiracy theory that that social media censors the right and this goes back to about the story back in about 2016 when uh, a facebook employee i think it was a facebook employee blew a whistle and said that they were actively censoring stories from the right to create more of a balance in the news feed and that kind of has fueled ever since this uh, this kind of right-wing conspiracy theory that that all of social media and mainstream media censors the right. I don't I don't know that there's any real evidence to support that, but it's a it's a belief, and I think Elon Musk is playing to that theory and that agenda. I personally think social media itself is is an impossible moderation exercise. You can't moderate it. it it's so incredibly difficult to police social media. It's grown beyond anything any of these guys who started these things in the first place. Uh, it's grown. Beyond all of the wildest dreams, I think it seems to me that the kind of the, 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 there's a conflation between this idea of the freedom to say what you want to say and the right of a private company platform that can say if you consistently say things that are factually and harmfully untrue, we're going to take your take your right to be on our platform away. They're two very different things, and this whole Elon has conflated back. Um, those two issues so we're talking about free speech but actually we're not talking about the freedom to speak or that we're not talking about the ability to speak freely on twitter because that exists 
today. What we're actually talking about is restoring people like Donald Trump and Marjorie Taylor Swift or whatever her name is. You know, the people that are extreme mm. and repeat offenders when it comes to talking complete bollocks on, the, on social media. I'm no Donald Trump fan, but I think he was a master at get at messaging, and he cemented this 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 view that mainstream media was was censoring and corrupting and manipulating the news, so people now long no longer trust it, <clears throat> and that's why you get more people today that believe the Earth is flat than there were you know 500 years ago. You could argue that Twitter is the biggest mass media platform in the world, at least one of them, and and he was expertly manipulating it. There's the irony. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Or, or allegedly. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, Twitter is a what two hundred million user platform. Facebook is three billion. Yeah. Facebook is declining and is probably on the slippery slope down. It's difficult to see what Facebook are going to do. And Elon might be thinking, you know what? If I can develop really great products and features into this product, into this platform, which has had nothing innovative essentially in ten years, and if I can start getting it to a a billion users and make it the equivalent of a TikTok, but for um, media and news and opinion. So TikTok is kind of entertainment. Then actually, uh, you've got that instant, uh, instant uh, dopamine hit type social media product, and that will that will make Facebook look like a, an analog product in a digital age. So. There might be some some method in his madness. I mean, I personally can't see it, but who would bet against, you know, the, the probably the most innovative product creator of our generation by a mile. What do you guys, our newbie listeners, think we should be talking about in the next episode? And you can get in touch with us. I don't think we've got a Twitter channel yet, but we may get one. But you can also contact us at ptlt at seanweston.co.uk. And Rick and I are both on LinkedIn. So drop us a note, say hello. Rick, what are you watching? No spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers. But what have you been streaming? So I started watching We Crashed uh, about a week ago, which is on. I tried that. I tried it. I did the first two. Yeah, and I, cu I couldn't. It didn't catch me. How was it doing for you? I hated the first episode. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Jared Leto has got Adam Newman down to a T. Um, there's a there's a very good interview from about four or five months ago with Adam Newman, who hadn't been in public for about three years. And when you watch that, and then you watch Jared Leto, you think that you know he's got the accent. Can you go back to what you were saying about changing the world? Our mission is to elevate the world's consciousness. Period. And how do you do that? Mm, that's a great question. By living proactively and with purpose, by being a student of life for life. And by doing that, it just... By, by doing this, we elevate ourselves and then the world. The world. But he was just so painfully pre uh, precocious and pretentious and uh, the whole story of just this mad, insane, crazy um, journey to create WeWork. I mean, it's, it's, it's beyond... I've got two episodes to go. I stuck it out. It actually gets better. Um, it, once you kind of like tune into the uh, the weirdness of the characters. and So you think I should delve back in? Yeah, I tell you, and it's an yeah. interesting story. And if it's, if it's even half true, it's an interesting insight into big money and, inf and investors because SoftBank come in and they just throw money at Adam Newman. And there's no regard whatsoever for what you'd call fundamentals like cost um mm. it's whatever it takes and more and um it's weird but of course we all know how the how it ends uh with we crash uh, with we work and so you kind of know the end it but it, it's interesting so I've, I've stuck with that i just finished those arc 
we, we just do what shows are. Yeah, I did. He's, funny enough, we were just talking to our friends. We went out for dinner last night and we were talking to our friends about Ozark. They've just finished the latest series. My, yeah. uh, my wife and I, we started it and stopped and then we started it again. I like it, but she's got a bit bored with it uh, once we're into the third series. So it's, a, it's one of those that I'll, I will have to finish watching on my own. I like it. I like the story. Yeah, I like the characters. It's, it's marvellous. I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but it's just brilliant. So the, I like series that come to a conclusion as well. You know, we, we, a lot of series taper off, don't they? Mm. But the studios just think, you know, let's just squeeze the sponge as much as we can. Um, but but there, was a, there was a definite ending. There was a good arc to this. Mm. We're also watching Better Call Saul. Uh-huh. On that, you know that that new thing the streaming services do, or at least Netflix, where they do a season, but they do a part one of the season, mm. and then they wait a few months and throw part two at you. Get why they do it, but it's so annoying. It's a, well, I think we've changed, haven't we? We we um, we watch everything in a in a box set view. So even yeah. even on on terrestrial television, when they're every Sunday night, there's an episode. We just wait until it's 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 all finished, and then we just watch it <laughs> in yeah. one go. Yeah, we can do catch up. Yeah. We watch the chase uh, every evening. We which is five o'clock UK time, six o'clock for us. <laughs> yeah. We just love Bradley Walsh. And uh, my sister was on that. Was she? Yeah. My sister was on it last year. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, do you know what? I, I can't remember the details of the episode, but in the end, they were so close. They were so close. But but yeah, she thoroughly enjoyed the experience and she has nothing but good things to say about Bradley Walsh. Oh, it's great. Well, I'll tell you another series that we really enjoyed is Breaking Dad. That's Bradley and his son, and they go off in a camper van. Come on in, Cockle. Where are we going first? Well, I thought we'd go to the beach. Great. What are you looking at me for? I can't drive it. You've got me 25 to drive. This is 36 foot, this thing. Come on, let's go. I'm going to have to take it around the block a couple of times. <laughs> have I really got to drive this? How am I going to get it out of here? <laughs> it's like driving a block of flats. Oh, oh, whoa, whoa. The relationship between father and son is, is wonderful. They're warm and close and loving and um, Bradley drives and he banter with his son and his son's an adrenaline junkie and he gets Bradley to do all these these things like abseiling and bungee jumping and going for a swim in the Arctic <laughs> waters, uh, you know. In I can see his face now, yeah. And he does it, he's up for it, but it's just good fun. Let's talk Airbnb, Rick. What, what have you read this week? What drew my attention was last weekend, the Airbnb CEO, Brian Chesky, tweeted um, their new five-point plan. And basically what Airbnb have done is they've said that any employee can work wherever they want to work. They can choose to work from home or the office. It's up to them. They can work anywhere in the country. They don't have to live near to the office or the headquarters. They can live in any country in the world for up to 90 days a year uh, and that's really just for, for from a tax point of view um, and then what airbnb are going to do is they're going to have regular team meetings at least once a quarter so the idea is that they have a truly global workforce and then on a regular basis they'll say you're all coming to san francisco for a week and we rent a big space and um we have everybody together so they do all of the networking team building you know uh, general broadcast and strategy kind of stuff. I think the sentence they used is to make sure there's a human connection, right? To make sure there's a human connection. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And it's this hybrid. Um, but the point is that other firms have gone to the model of saying, well, you can do two days a week working from home, but three days in the office. Yeah, it's Apple that are recently doing that. Aren't and if you look at Google, I mean, I, I, I haven't seen anything for about six months, but last year Google announced, in fact, they even created a little calculator on the employee portal 
And they said, if you're going to choose to work from home, which you can do, we're going to dock your money. And based on your the mm. amount of money you save in commuting. So if you live two hours away and you come into the office, you could lose 25% of your salary because you're saving that time. Are they using Clockify at, at Google? Is that what they're doing? <laughs> is it basically an old clocking in thing? It was the weirdest thing. When you think that Google is a, an employer of choice, it attracts great minds. What a, what a bum thing to say to people. Well, you know. Absolutely. Whereas I think with Airbnb, in fact, they tweeted on Tuesday. Imagine how... Remember, I've, I've just realised that I keep saying tweeted. So although I'm okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've disclosed it's in our vernacular. Now, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, well, obviously we get our main information from. But yeah, you know, Airbnb apparently tweet uh, Chesky tweeted it on the Friday. I think they announced it, and by the Tuesday when they did the earnings call, that was Tuesday of this week, um, which is what about the third of May. They had over eight hundred thousand people visit their careers webpage in Incredible. a four days. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's I read huge. That. Um, and so all of a sudden, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of Airbnb and um, they use the pandemic well. So if you think two years ago, they, they, they got their own house in order, excuse the pun. And uh, they, they, they got themselves, yeah, they got, I've been working on that all night. And, um, you know, so now, you know, they're in, they're, they're in, a, they're in a, a very strong state. They just announced their numbers. They had like a hun- over 100 million nights booked. They got one and a half billion of revenue uh, in the quarter, which is up 70% from a year ago. Their losses are coming down. And the interesting thing for me is that when you look at, you compare them against the two biggest hotel chains of Hilton and Marriott, Airbnb have got annual revenues of about 6 billion compared to nearly 20 billion for the other two. And yet the value of Airbnb is about the same. The market value of Airbnb is about the same as Hilton and Marriott. And so you know, the, the analyst, the market itself values Airbnb uh, two and a half, three times more than it does the big players, the established players like a Hilton and a Marriott. And so the whole kind of branding of Airbnb and the positioning, to me, Airbnb will become one of the top 10 global brands in the world. Wow. So they do have some downsides. Uh, you know, there's some, there's, some, there's some negatives to Airbnb. There's some real concern around their impacts to social cohesion, their distortion of the housing supply market because people are, are just buying property for, for, for Airbnp and so so you're not getting new houses on the market for families to buy so there's a you know there's a downside in the same way that we've had this huge debate around uber and their impact on uh, local economies that's an interesting um, uh, analogy there as well or comparison I should say is is with uber because I was a big fan of uber when it first came out and and part of my fandom of uber was in how they delivered how they presented their service so it wasn't necessarily necessarily the service per se you know that convenience of using your app to get a ride but it was being picked up in a nice car by someone who was dressed well who then opened the door for you put your luggage in the back and there was a bottle of water do you remember those days there was a bottle of water for every passenger then that wasn't there anymore and to me the the big reason i enjoyed uber um, wasn't there anymore and I feel a little bit like that where, when we go to an Airbnb. They're not quite, you get to a place and, you know, there's some, there's standards. There's something about the maintenance of your brand and the maintenance of the standards of your brand when you first started out, they're hard to maintain. It's a good point. I'm not, I don't really use Airbnb, uh, partly because we've, we've not traveled in two and, two and a half years. So, but I'm not a big Airbnb user, so I don't have that same, that same kind of perspective. But I get exactly what you mean about Uber. 
Yeah, shame, isn't it? I mean, I used to spend, the amount of times I used to stand in a pouring rain in the middle of London trying to get a taxi. And everyone was, every one of them was going the wrong, the other way. And they would just carry on driving, even though their lights were on. And then all of a sudden, Uber would come along and you'd, you'd have a little map telling you that there was two minutes away, one minute away, coming around the corner. So, yeah, I mean, Uber just definitely made that difference. Our first experience of it, we lived in Amsterdam and you'd be picked up in, you know, these little white Mercedes and, and it just felt so great. It felt so classy mm. and it felt as if, you know, you were being chauffeured, not taxied mm. to the airport. You were being chauffeured to the airport mm. and you were using this great, you were using your phone to do it and it was just marvellous. Mm. Whereas now you can do it. And because um, there's a lot of affiliation with the taxi companies, just, you're picked up by the same taxi guy in the grotty old car in the back that he hasn't cleaned out in months, listening to whatever he wants to listen to on the radio. Yeah. And, and it's just not there. Yeah. It's not there. And sometimes the experience is as much a part of the brand as the convenience. And, and I think that's missing. Mm. Yeah, but you know, the thing, the thing with the Uber, and it's relevant to Airbnb as well, is that now you've got alternatives. You've got Lyft, for example. And a lot of the, a lot of the drivers, because they're freelanced individuals, they'll be on an Uber app. They'll have the Lyft app. They'll have other local apps as well. Yeah. And so the Uber car, you know, the advantage of Uber and Airbnb is that they don't have any of the cost or overhead of staff or assets. They don't own the cars. They don't own the properties like a Hilton would do or a, or a, taxi firm would do yeah <clears throat> but that also means that that individual can then hawk their services around to everybody else so it's uber have lost control of the the branding experience because they're just as you say they're just getting in a car and the only thing they can control is the app itself but be interesting yeah. to see the other the other thing that um, is just worth watching on the sort of changes of the way of working is that there's some research that is suggesting that work, remote working might have some downsides, particularly when it comes to innovation and creativity. There was a study, a uh, university study that I wrote about about a week ago that was published in Nature. And what they did was they took two teams, or they took a team of people and split them into two. Some were work meeting face-to-face -face, and some were on Zoom calls. And they were, they were doing brainstorming, innovation, ideation type sessions. And what they did was they tracked uh, the eye movements of everybody in the two different groups. And they were obviously able to do it on Zoom by putting a camera in front of the screen. And what they found was that when people were in face-to-face -face meetings, there was lots of looking up to the right and looking up to the left to, to indicate that individuals were going into some some creative mode in their brain. And then they're going off a little side tangent. But when people were on Zoom calls, they tended to be just staring at the screen all of the time. And the researchers extrapolated that out to, uh, to say, looking at them, so. say that they're looking well they're, they're, they're their attention is on the on the speaker then their attention is not on free forming anyway they, they see that's why i'm a big fan of turning your video off <laughs> exactly. just have the audio call well they they measured they measured the output of the two groups and it was about 20 percent difference the the face-to-face -face team were 20 percent more creative However they measured the creativity, you know, I think you could get into a subjective debate there. But the point was that there's a, there's, I think there's still an unanswered question as to how do you get people to work um, for, the, for the greater good of the business and of the collective team if everybody's working in isolation? Because you and I both, we work in our own homes in isolation and it's sometimes very difficult when you haven't got someone to bounce ideas off or you're in a particular mood and you just want to chat with someone. And the convenience of having somebody next door to you or at the coffee machine that you can, you can just chew the, chew the cud with for 10 minutes mm. to develop your own thinking 
is very hard when you're when you're working on your own. Yeah, I can understand that too. However, I I do think those instances are few and far between, and I think a lot of, we overemphasize the benefit of that when it happens very rarely, in my experience anyway. Yeah, probably true. Yeah, you probably do. I, I must admit, as somebody who's worked from home for probably 15, 20 years, you, you learn to work this way as opposed to always being in the office. And it, once you've adjusted to it, you learn that you need a certain discipline and uh, you know what you miss that you can compensate for in other ways. So anyway, be interesting. Anyway, well, let, let's end that bit on, on saying I'd like to share with you this interesting piece about getting people back in the office. And this is from ADP Research Institute. They said that 64% of people say they would consider quitting their role if they were asked to return to the office full-time. That's huge, isn't it? That is huge. So it has to be something that companies take seriously when, when they're doing their new strategies. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw last week, just a, a related but different stat, four and a half million people in the United States quit work last year. Um, and the numbers are just very big as the as the workforce is is changing and this shift towards people becoming independent workers is 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 continued to for my mind it's continued enough beyond the pandemic to think that there's definitely a shift now in the way that certain groups of talent want to want to live their lives and and not necessarily be based in high, highly expensive very busy congested cities when they can yeah. they can use their talents to earn a, a a life create a lifestyle that's much more appealing to them in a different way and is much more balanced we've talked about work-life balance for so long haven't we in, in in western corporations and yet none of us have really done anything about it we've all continued to get on the hamster wheel so what should be fixed by technology rick my, I'm voting for the house buying process. Oh, go on then. The mortgage process. Go on then. I haven't done one. Oh, it, it's just awful. You know, when you're going through this, months and months of um, people saying that, oh, we're paperless now, it's all online, and, and it really isn't. It's just the whole lipstick on a pig argument, you know. Uh, getting a mortgage or buying a new house, it's the same old process that's been around since probably my grandma got her first house. Um, and they're dressing it up as, we've got a nice website now, but it, it we're, we're so hamstrung by red tape and bureaucracy, and it's not going to change by pretending to be digital. <laughs> the biggest challenge I see for the banks is that their technology is a lot of it is pre-digital. So there, it's one thing to change because it is a slipstick on a pig. It's one thing to change the web front end, but if the underlying systems in the back end were written 10, 20, maybe 30 on years late on tablets of stone, yeah, you you, yeah. you have literally. You know, you have literally got a huge constraint, and this legacy has been um, impossible for banks and insurance companies to move off from. So, yeah, I, I get the, the banking uh, mortgage thing, but the one I would fix, the thing that irritates me the most, um, is that every time I go onto a website, I get asked about cookies. I get the little thing up, except cookies, and I go some sites I go onto every single day. It's so annoying. And every day they come up, and I think, why are you coming up? I just, I, I keep telling you. And of course, the thing is, you just do the accept all. Oh, I don't anymore. No way. I, I go through the four, five-click process of rejecting everything. Have you got time for that? 
Well, it, it takes five seconds. Come on. <laughs> well, maybe I should. So what's the, 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 the alternative is that they're scraping your, uh, your history. I know. And what you do. And, you know, let's not let them get away with that. I know. You know? Well, you see, but there must be a better solution to this. Um, it's so, got to be. You know, who reads terms and conditions of your mortgage or your insurance policy or, you, you know, you don't. And uh, uh, they're, they're written by lawyers and they'll be, they'll be hugely difficult to understand. And but the point is, why it, it, I would read them if it was like once, and then that was it, and maybe every few months or whatever they just reviewed. But why is it? Why I don't understand why I get a cookie banner coming up on every almost like every time I go to a new page. Yeah, let's fix it. Yeah, let's fix it. All right, I'm, I'm going to lead out, if you don't mind, with my hero of the week. We both know Ron Shevlin. He's a man who knows his way around the world of financial technology, or otherwise known as fintech. And he admitted on LinkedIn this week that he'd called his bank's fraud department to query two Amazon transactions that he didn't recognize. Good for him. Only to be told they were deposits on the sale of his book, aptly called Smarter Bank. So, in a world that appears to have forgotten how to laugh at itself, thank you, Ron Shevlin, <laughs> for owning up and having the humility to share your senior moment with the rest of us we all have them we do but not many of us own up to them if we do i saw that i saw that story i commented back to to ron on that one that was that was very funny and it was very uh uh uh, humble of him to share the story it was yeah i agree all right well thank you for listening to our first episode as most humans do we will evolve the show will evolve the topics may evolve but we will strive to stick to big tech little tech and everything in between This has been a Sean Weston Media production. I was Sean Weston. And I was Rick Huckstep.